0: Dear Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. We praise you for having access to you through your word. That you have uh, condescended to reveal yourself to men and women. Though we are sinful and far from you in our hearts on many occasions, Father, you nonetheless in your mercy and grace reach out to us by your word so that we might know of you and of your forgiveness and of your plan for the future, that we would be a part of it by faith. Thank you, Father, for that mercy. We take it for granted. We often overlook it. Our Bibles sometimes sit at home unattended. But what an amazing gift it is, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us, for we'd never know anything of you apart from what you reveal. So we come back to you tonight, Father, seated at your feet. This word is now before us, and in it, Father whole, you have provided us with everything necessary for life and godliness and Boy, Father, we need both. So, Father, please teach us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, We're back, and we're still studying through Jesus' miracles in the Galilee. And now tonight we're preparing to move into the second group of those miracles as Matthew has recorded them and and organized them. You'll remember I've told you that Matthew has carefully selected ten miracles out of all that Jesus did in the time he ministered in the Galilee. And he's highlighting those now in chapters 8 and 9. They're grouped into three groups of like kinds. The first group, which we just finished studying, were those miracles over the body. And in that group, the point Matthew made was that Jesus has the authority as the Creator God. He has the authority and the power over the human body, over the condition of our bodies, which means He has the power to grant us eternal life. That's where we left off. Now, the second group of miracles, which we're coming up on now, are miracles over the creation. But before we get into that section... Matthew inserts a moment between the first group and the second group. A moment that takes place between Jesus and some of His disciples. You may remember that when I gave you an outline for chapters 8 and 9, a few weeks back, I told you that Matthew likes to separate his three groups of miracles with these scenes, two scenes in each case. So the first scene that separates groups 1 and 2 is a demonstration of Jesus' authority over His disciples. The second scene that's between groups 2 and 3 will show His authority over the unbelieving world, over even His enemies. And so by the combination of miracles and these two scenes, the sum effect of it all is that we would know Jesus has power and authority over everything. Period. So today we're going to study the first of those two scenes. And this is the one in which Jesus explains His authority, or maybe I should say it this way, His expectations for His disciples. We'll go in verse 18 now. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. And then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All right, there you go. That's the beginning of this scene. Now, if you were to turn to Mark or Luke, you'll see the same scene. So because we have their cross-references, we get a pretty good understanding of what's going on, more than we might get if we just had Matthew's account. Luke says Jesus was in the area of Magdala. And Magdala is a little town, fishing village, on the northwestern corner for the Sea of Galilee. Today you can actually see the ruins of that town. If you go with me to Israel next year, we'll drive right by it. And it's best known for its most prominent citizen, Mary of Magdala. Jesus healed Mary in this region and several other women who were possessed by demons while he was teaching. And Luke and Mark says that at the same time as he did that in this region, he had just taught a parable on the sower and the seed. You may remember that. It's in Luke chapter 8, for example. In fact, Mark says that Jesus taught that parable while standing on a boat just a little off from the shore. So he's standing on a boat teaching a crowd that's standing on the shore and can't get any closer because of the water that separates them. And he did that so that the crowd that had been pressing in to get healing had no choice but to stop and stand there and listen and hope for him to come back so they could get the healing that they were waiting for. He wanted them to hear what he had to say, not just come for the the show, so to speak. But then at some point the crowds just became unmanageable. And so Jesus ventures across the Sea of Galilee, across the very northern tip from that moment. He just stays in the boat after he teaches and moves across And the Sea of Galilee comes to a point in the north, and so he just cuts across the top of it, landing on the westward side in a place called Gerasa. And the Gerasenes is the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's largely settled in Jesus' day by Gentiles. It was considered the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. You'll know later when we get there, that scene where Jesus casts out demons and they go into pigs. That happens in Gerasa. Remember, Jews didn't keep pigs. That's the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's located directly across from Magdala. So now back to Matthew. That's the scene. That's the moment we're in. And in Matthew eight 18, we're told Jesus is preparing to cross the lake. So what that tells us is this exchange between him and the disciples happens in about the same moment as the teaching of the parable of the sower and the sea. But Matthew doesn't record that parable here. He puts that parable later in his gospel, and he moves it to that later point for reasons we'll know when we get to Matthew 13. Meanwhile, Jesus is about to start a short journey by boat, as I said. And as he's standing in the boat, as he's preparing to depart, you have a scribe who proclaims at the top of his voice, I'll follow you wherever you go. And the scribe begins by calling Jesus teacher, which is another way of saying rabbi. So he's indicating to Jesus that his desire is to be Jesus' disciple. I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. And he makes this pledge of discipleship. He does it very publicly so that everyone can hear it. Doesn't that seem a little self-serving? He's probably expecting Jesus is going to approve of that comment. You know, perhaps he thought Jesus would commend him a little bit, publicly. You know, What a sacrificial attitude. I need more guys like you. Most likely, the scribe was hoping Jesus would have said, Well, you know what? You should just come up here and get in this boat with me now. Invite him to join the journey that was about to take place. That's certainly the way Pharisaic Judaism worked. I mean, this is the way the culture worked. Disciples of any rabbi were expected to lavish praise and honor on those men for all they knew and all they had done. And then in turn, those rabbis would extend favor to those students who ingratiated themselves to the rabbi. And in that mutual admiration society between teacher and and disciple, they learned how to work the system. So here's a scribe. Now remember, the term scribe refers to someone who would have been trained up under a rabbinical system. So here's a scribe who's just working the system the way he's been taught to work it. I want to get in the boat. I need to ingratiate myself to this man. But he's not fooling anyone, and he's certainly not fooling Jesus. I want you to understand how this guy was trying to be heard. His declaration was not some pledge of personal sacrifice. That's not how to hear it. It's not some guy saying, I'll walk away from everything to follow you. I'm just so committed. That's how we hear it. That's not what he meant. That's not the way Jesus heard it. It was flattery. I want you to remember the scene for a moment you got Jesus surrounded by a crowd of thousands, and they're all scrambling to get to Him. And He's been moving around the Galilee constantly because of the need to minister to all these people in the region who want to be with Jesus. In fact, it's gotten to the point now where He's moving to escape the crowds. And that is not a typical rabbinical pattern. This is not normal rabbis did not walk around with crowds following them right they would stay in one place they tended to minister through a rabbinical school that they would conduct within some area they didn't need to move around they didn't have crowds to worry about that's not the way it worked jesus is on a whole nother level he is the talk of the galilee at this point and everybody knows it Certainly this scribe knows it. So in the midst of that throng of admirers, this man pipes up and says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. It would be just like a teenage groupie today shouting at that popular rock star, I want to have your baby. Think of it like that. The scribe is flattering Jesus by acknowledging his popularity in a sense. He's saying to Jesus, You're widely traveled. You're in demand. I want to go with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. It's hardly a statement of sacrifice. He's trying to get invited to this party. Or so that's what he sees. I've heard similar things said to me from time to time. Not the baby comment. (laughs) Let me just be clear about that. No one's offered to have my baby. And to be further clear, I would always say no to that. Just so you know. (laughs) This is not a dialogue. This is a monologue. But here's what I hear. When I tell someone, for example, look, I'm booked to go teach at a church in Hawaii or Singapore or London or Costa Rica or Norway or New Zealand, what do you think I hear at that point? People will say, wow, gee, if you need someone to carry your luggage, I'll go with you, right? It's obviously making a joke, and I get it. It's a way of saying how nice it must be to be able to go and minister in that way and travel and see those wonderful places, right? But they don't realize how difficult ministry is, frankly. Do you know how uncomfortable it is when you get sand in your swimsuit on the beach in Hawaii? It's miserable. But in seriousness, that's how you need to hear this man's comment to Jesus. He wasn't joking, though. He wanted to join Jesus in his ministry adventures. And he's pledging himself as a disciple, provided he gets to join this adventure. I'll go with you wherever you go. Look at Jesus' response, if you doubt my interpretation. Jesus seizes on this guy's pledge to expose his insincerity he begins by rejecting the scribe's attempt to ingratiate himself he rebukes the man putting to rest any suggestion that his ministry was glamorous or appealing or an adventure he says well foxes have holes in the ground and birds have their nests but jesus didn't even have a home of his own in other words even animals have something in this world to call their own holes nests and the like but you never have an envy over that do you you never look at where an animal lives and go, you know, honey, that would be a pretty nice option. You don't think about trading your home for a fox's hole? I mean, that's ridiculous, right? We never think about that. But that's what this man was signing up for, though he didn't know it. Jesus says the Son of Man doesn't even possess the basic necessities of life like a home, something even animals have the privilege to have. The term Son of Man here refers to the Messiah, biblically. But whenever Jesus chooses to use that particular term in reference to himself as Messiah, he does so to emphasize the humility and the suffering that the Messiah would have to experience. Son of man. The lowering of God to the state of incarnation so that he could suffer on a cross. That's what son of man is meant to imply. What he's pointing out to the scribe is, you made some false assumptions about what it means to follow me. Starting with discipleship, isn't a pursuit of the best things in your life now that's not that kind of life it's a life of self-sacrifice generally jesus was not like the rabbis of his day because they like to use their power and their prestige as a way to enrich themselves that was the way it worked jesus says that's not my example i'm setting a different course i'm not pursuing the world's agenda i'm not focusing on a living on climbing a social ladder on seeking a secure retirement That's not my goal in life. Jesus was not destitute. He had benefactors. Jesus received what he needed through others as the father appointed it so that he could sustain his life. He wasn't going to go hungry and die. You know, that wasn't going to happen. But the point is he was not seeking privilege and wealth. That wasn't his goal. He was pursuing a kingdom that was not of this world, not of this earth. And that meant he had to sacrifice a lot of daily pleasures of life in order to serve that heavenly purpose. That's what he was saying to this guy. So the scribes' assumptions were completely wrong. Following Jesus is not an adventure vacation. Now, when Jesus gave this response to the man, he establishes a principle. And in fact, in this conversation we're studying tonight, both in the part we've looked at so far and what's coming next, there are two principles that Jesus puts forth to anyone who says they want to be Jesus' disciple. The first principle is, a disciple must be prepared to deny himself or herself what he or she wants in this life so they can follow and serve Jesus. There is a mutual exclusivity in following Christ. Discipleship requires that you step back to some degree from pursuing the world's agenda because you only have so much time on this earth. And you only have so much energy and you only get so much resources to put to use. You cannot spend it all twice. can't spend the same hour twice. You can't spend the same day twice. You can't spend the same dollar twice. So if you pledge yourself to following and serving Jesus as his disciple in this life, it will by necessity require that you forego your own desires to some degree. You can't have your cake and eat it too when it comes to discipleship. Now at this point, I need to emphasize something that may not be clear for everyone in the room. There is a difference between becoming His disciple and being saved. There's a difference between being Jesus' disciple and having saving faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus is a gift, the Bible says. You enter into your relationship with Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by your own work. Your salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works, so that no man or woman may boast about how they came to Jesus. And so when Jesus talks about the need for commitment and personal sacrifice, He is not talking about how you get saved. Do you hear that? Because if He were, He would be preaching a works-based gospel, and we know that's not what He's doing. He's talking not about how you come to know Him. He's talking about how you come to serve Him. Discipleship is a process of becoming a faithful follower of Jesus, and it is a mindset that manifests in a life lived differently. It's a changed outlook in life, made possible by your new identity in Christ. But friends, not everyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus will embrace that changed outlook. Not everyone does. Simply put, not everyone who is born again becomes a disciple. You become a child of God because God crucified Jesus. But you become a disciple of Christ by crucifying your own flesh. But over the centuries, millions of believers have come to faith, they've received eternal life in Jesus Christ, but they have not taken the next step of serving Him faithfully as a disciple they confessed jesus maybe they read their bibles a little bit maybe they went to church once in a while they they were kind of typical christian in some level but their life didn't really change the direction of their life the goals of their life their focus it was more or less the way it had always been they just scheduled christianity into their life just like you would add bowling night or your kids soccer games on the weekends it just fit in and i'm not saying you're less saved for that not at all But what I'm saying is, trusting in Jesus for your salvation should mean and is supposed to mean that your life looks a lot different over time. There are people out there who trust in Jesus for their salvation, but they still trust in the mighty dollar for their security and for their satisfaction. They pursue fame or career or recreation or hobbies or whatever instead of pursuing a life of serving Christ. And when you do that, however you do that, that choice comes at a cost. You're trading an opportunity to build an eternal kingdom so that you can chase after a fading life. Now, everyone, to some degree, has to split their time. We all live in the world. You can't run out of the world. Jesus says he didn't pray that we would be taken out of the world. He just wanted us to be unstained by it. And a staining process is the problem. I think this is probably the the greatest self-deception within the 21st century church, particularly in the West, this deception that says discipleship is nothing more than believing. And I think it's because our world is pretty wealthy. Our culture is, is so inviting. Our, our, our comfort is so important that the church generally has no appreciation anymore for the cost of discipleship. And as a result, churches, pastors routinely preach that following Jesus is a win-win. You get heaven when you die, and in the meantime, your life here gets shinier and brighter and happier and more prosperous. Hey, friends, that's not how it works. We all live in the world by necessity, and Jesus is not demanding that we leave the world. He's just saying, where's your heart's desire? What is it you want out of this world? What are your goals? So believer, are you a disciple? Do you live to please yourself, or are you committed to pleasing Jesus? It's one or the other. Do you care more for the world's approval or His? Do you live with eyes for eternity? Are you aware that the kingdom is coming up pretty fast? And when it comes, it's the world you're going to know the rest of eternity? Are you trying to build a kingdom in this world, or are you preparing for that one? Because if you're not careful, you tend to think about discipleship like the scribe did. That is, you'll say to yourself, I'll follow Jesus anywhere, but in the back of your mind you add this caveat, well, as long as my schedule fits, as long as it can fit in with these other priorities that I have in life, I'll go to church, as long as it's sensible, contemporary worship. I can wear shorts and they don't go on too long. You'll follow him on a short-term mission trip, well, as long as it's an exotic destination with a beach and the water is safe to drink. I'm being a little facetious, but not a lot. There are people whose thinking goes exactly like that. We'll serve in church or we'll join a small group or we'll give and whatever, so long as it doesn't disrupt my plans for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that's not what discipleship looks like. Not in the way it's written in the Bible. The scribe wanted to be Jesus' disciple because he wanted what appeared to be thrill and excitement and maybe privilege for being associated with this special guy, this rock star in the Galilee. But Jesus says, you haven't counted the cost and you haven't paid much attention to what I have to offer. So Jesus said, if the Messiah does not even have a home in this world, how much worldly reward do you suppose you're going to get by following me? Is the disciple greater than the master? If a disciple truly wants to follow Jesus, he has to be prepared to deny himself. Jesus asked his disciples to do those things, to deny things, to sacrifice things. And those are going to be things that differ one from another and in varying levels. Not all of us will sacrifice as much. Not all of us in the same way. I'm not saying everybody in here has to sell everything and go to the other side of the world and live in poverty if you want to please Jesus. That's not the recipe. It's only going to be what God asks of you. The problem is he knows exactly what you're not willing to give up and guess what he's likely to ask for? It's not because God's cruel or vindictive or any of that sort of thing. It's because he knows where our heart has set a limit in obedience and he knows that's not good for us. So he'll push a little to see if we're really going to be a committed disciple or not. He'll ask things of you that your spouse won't want you to give or your parents say they don't want you to give or your friends say they can't be around you if that's what you're going to do or be or say or whatever. He wants to know if you're willing to make a sacrifice. It's just that simple. He's going to ask for your time, time you'd rather spend on yourself or your family or your career. He's going to ask for your money, money you'd rather spend on yourself or maybe not at all. He's going to ask for your blood, your sweat, your tears, whatever he wants. He's going to ask you to leave behind things so that you can serve him better in the kingdom. Not every one of us will be poor, but many will. Not all of us are going to be weary, but some will. Not all of us are going to be persecuted, but a few will. It's easy to be a Christian. You just have to believe. Discipleship, that's hard. Not everyone makes it there. So that's your first rule. Discipleship is being willing to deny yourself as God appoints so that you can follow Him. Ready for the second rule? <laughs> Some are saying, mm, one's enough. Let's look at the second rule, verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead, or their own dead, he says. So as he's departing, again, in the boat, you have a second man, and he offers Jesus an explanation for why he couldn't accompany Jesus across the lake with the rest of the disciples. Now that first man, the scribe, he had made the mistake of committing to discipleship too quickly without counting the cost. This guy is making the opposite mistake. He's hesitating to make a commitment. And Jesus is asked by this guy, can I go deal with my family matters before I commit to following you? He says he has to go bury his father. Now that kind of seems like a reasonable request, right? I mean, come on, who shouldn't be allowed a little time off to go handle this urgent family matter? What, a few days and he'll be back? It's no big deal? Well, if you think that, then you also think that Jesus' response is pretty harsh and a bit unloving. But it's not as it seems, because this man is working from a particular Jewish point of view. And in Jewish culture, the oldest son in the family was expected to stay there in the family, working the land, working the business, until dad died. And then he had the responsibility to assume what his father had left behind, uh, a share of the inheritance and the running of the family. He would become the new patriarch. And so in that culture, you didn't leave the home till dad was gone. And so in this case, it's likely that that event is still many years away for this man. It's not that his father has already died. He's expressing to Jesus this need to fulfill an earthly obligation that he has as a son in this family and that he can't be expected to run off after Jesus in discipleship because of this prior obligation that is holding him to his family situation. He's telling Jesus, my family responsibilities exempt me from making the lifestyle change that discipleship requires. So once again, Jesus has none of this. He says, quite pointedly, let the dead bury their dead. Now that's euphemism. We know that because if you try to take his statement literally, it makes absolutely no sense. right? A dead person cannot bury another dead person. That's self-evident. What he means euphemistically is, not let the physical dead bury the physical dead. But what he's saying is, let the spiritual dead, meaning unbelievers, the unsaved, let them handle their business. You know, Paul says in Ephesians that unbelievers are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the state of humanity, every human being before they come to faith. So what Jesus is saying is, leave the unbelieving world to them. This world belongs to unbelievers. Friends, that's what the Bible says. This world is not our home. It's passing. We're destined for better things. We're just moving through this place. As I like to say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is as bad as life will ever be for you. You're at the bottom right now, which is good news. But if you're an unbeliever until you die, this world is as good as life will ever be. Because as rough as this world is, it's all the unbeliever ever gets to call his own. And so what Jesus is saying to this disciple is, why don't you let the unbelieving world attend to the business of this world? It's their world, it's not ours anyway. And a disciple of Jesus has better things to attend to. That is, to kingdom matters. Your kingdom, my kingdom, it has not arrived yet. And yet we're supposed to live with eyes for it. Our best example in Scripture, in my opinion, of this is Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the hall of faith, as we call it, the writer of Hebrews calls out Abraham for a living with this mindset of not attending to this world, but of only thinking of what's to come. Let me just read a quick passage out of Hebrews 11, and I'll remind you of what's said about this man. In Hebrews 11:8, we're told, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which, notice, which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien. "...in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, following fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." And then a couple verses later, the writer finishes, he says, "...all these," Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, "...all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here's what that passage says. One of my favorite passages of living in faith. This is what he just said to us about Abraham. He said, Abraham was called by God at a point in his life to go to a place he'd never been before, And he was told later when he got there that this land he now came to would be his. That it would be his and and his descendants would possess it and it would become his inheritance from God. A land that he could not have possessed in his lifetime. He wasn't going to walk around and beat all the people that lived there and defeat them all single-handedly. He had no way to possess the land. While he was in that land, he lived there, the Bible says, as a nomad in tents. That was not because he was a nomad. He came out of a city He was a city dweller. He moved to a place he had never been before and started living a lifestyle he had never known before, but he did it as a testimony, Hebrews says. He was living there knowing that God had promised that land to him, and yet he also knew he wasn't going to get it in his lifetime. So because he knew he would never receive that land in this earthly life, that it would only be his in a resurrected life to come, He remained a nomad. He never went into a city and he never accepted any gifts from the land because he wanted everyone to understand he knew better than to think he could get his gift now. He was willing to live his whole life to death as a nomad, as a testimony that this will be mine one day and in the resurrection I'll get it, but I don't get it till then. For now, I'm content to just wait and let you guys have it for the little bit of time you get it because I'm going to get it for a long time to come. That's the testimony of a man of faith. That is how much a man of faith he was. He was willing to live as a nomad rather than confuse anybody about where his real future was. That's the model of Scripture for a person who lives as a disciple of Christ. This world means so little to us. It's so passing, and we know that, that we care nothing for it. Now, I'm not saying the Bible says you have to live as a nomad. I'm just saying that's your standard. That's the bar. That's who the Bible holds out as our example of faith. Content to set his sights on what he would receive in the kingdom and to turn his back on the world's offerings in the meantime. That's living with eyes for eternity. And that's the second rule of discipleship. The second rule is discipleship requires placing the needs of the kingdom above any earthly obligations or commitments. When they conflict... We know which one wins. We don't let anything distract us from our mission. We don't let anything tempt us away from our mission. Nothing scares us into quitting because we have no relationship with this world now that we've come to Christ. It's like Abraham. We're looking for a city that God has prepared for us in the kingdom. We're just passing through this world to get to that one. We're just ambassadors in the meantime. So any earthly obligation we have takes a back seat to any call Jesus puts on our life. In discipleship. Those are the two rules of discipleship, and they work really well together. They keep you focused and obedient. Rule one warns us not to let our own desires get in the way of obedience, and rule number two reminds us to keep our eyes on eternity so nothing in this world gets in our way either. And those two things are really the whole problem what's inside you and what's in this world. The two ways the enemy can pull you off track. Jesus sums it up elsewhere in the gospel is take up your cross and follow him self sacrifice put your needs secondary to his doing so has its own rewards in Matthew 16 we'll get there later of course but in Matthew 16:24 Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it now that's not a statement of how you get saved that's a statement of how you become a disciple And then he goes on, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Here again, that's a reference to his judgment of the believer. When Jesus comes to the earth to set up his kingdom, we'll be there with him. We'll be joining him in that return. We'll be setting up the kingdom with him. We'll be entering with him to enjoy the glory of it. And he says, when that day comes, the Lord, having received his inheritance from the Father, will share it with us, repaying us according to our deeds. Referring to the service we did in faith as his disciples. So discipleship means following Jesus faithfully so that we can please Him by our service. And in pleasing Him, He promises to reward us, which in the end will make all this self-sacrifice well worth it. Remember the statement Jesus said to His disciples in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three, when the parable of the master and the servants, the master comes back after being gone for a while and having left his servants to work in his absence, he comes back and finds them having served him well in his absence. And what's that phrase He says to the ones who do well for him? Don't you all know this by heart? You should, because it's what you want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant or slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, that's what we all want to hear when we see Jesus. And it starts with setting aside our personal desires in place of his, and it continues in a setting aside of a love for the world. Now, if you're wondering how to put this into practice at this point, You're kind of looking at this like, you just threw a huge Mount Everest in front of me, Steve, and I'm not even sure how to get started on this climb. I hear you. I know the same feeling. But it's actually a lot simpler than it sounds. You don't need to know the whole plan. Abraham didn't know where he was going. He just had to start, okay? Christ tends to direct our life as we obey him in a series of small steps because I think he knows that if he asks any more of us at any given moment, it's probably not going to work well for us. That's his grace. That's his mercy. He knows how hard it is for us to move away from the world. He knows how hard our flesh is pulling on us. So in grace, he will move you in the direction that you know you're supposed to go in discipleship one little bit at a time, just like he told Abraham, go to a place I will show you. That phrase means that as Abraham walked, God revealed how to get there. I don't know how it went, but I'm pretty sure he didn't know where he was going more than a day or two in advance. Someone once said, God can't steer a stationary object. And I think there's some truth in that when it comes to this topic. We need to be in motion to some extent. We need to be inclined to move and inclined to obey so that he can steer us. And so the first step of discipleship, if you feel like you've got a mountain ahead of you of change that you're not sure how to go after because you feel the conviction to do better, but you're not sure where to go, let me just suggest to you that the very first step you need to take is obvious and clear to you Right now. I am convinced that God has already spoken to you. It's that thing you're kind of dragging your feet on. It's the obvious thing you've been wrestling with. It's something you need to start or stop or give up or give away or change. or You know it. And you can tell me what it is right now if I ask what it is. And it's the one thing you won't do. Why? Because He knows it. It's like somebody who says, I'll give away everything except that thing. Jesus says, I want that thing. Because it's the one thing you care about. It's the one thing standing in your way. So you don't need to know the whole path. You've already got step one, I'm pretty sure. Right in front of you, you just need to say yes to the thing he's asking you to say yes to. And as you do that, wait till the next step shows up. You'll be amazed where he's going to take you. You'd be amazed what he can do with a life of yeses. You just start. You, know, you don't have to know the plan. Just start. Maybe the cost seems too high right now. Maybe you're stopped where you are, if you are stopped, because it's something big. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a life change. Maybe it is a big thing because it's the big thing in your way. I don't know. Maybe you're too invested in the priorities of this world. Maybe you're too caught up in yourself. I mean, we all have that to some extent. I don't know what it is. He does. I'm just telling you what his expectations are. Let the dead bury their dead and don't get excited about some life of glamour if you're going to follow Jesus. Be prepared for that glamour in the kingdom. Will you be his disciple? Will you pass this test? Friends, if you come to church and you listen to the Bible, and that's the extent of it, I'm failing you, and I think it'd be much better if we got the message out of the Scriptures today and pass the test He's put in front of you. Say yes or no to whatever it is He wants you to do, and then look at what He does with that obedience. I think you'll be amazed at what can come from it. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I have no idea what's on the hearts of those who've heard the message tonight, Father, but I can tell you what's on mine. Thank you, Father, for the grace you've shown me over my years of of following you to patiently wait for me to say yes or no and the things that I have been stubbornly refusing to do. And thank you, Father, for your continued mercy and grace in the meantime. And, Father, I know that there are others in the room who probably feel the same way. We lift up our common voice of praise to you now, Father, that you would... Lead us to repentance by your kindness. We also thank you, Father, that you are long-suffering and that you wait and wait and wait. And then, Father, as we do hopefully obey in some day, we thank you, Father, for the way that you move us forward with no sense of regret, no guilt, no condemnation, that all that waiting is just in the past and that we can continue to serve you moving forward. Thank you, Father, for all of that mercy. And then, Father, for those in the room who are still sitting somewhere, waiting to take that first step, still reluctant, still caught up in the world or in something else, fearful, troubled, tempted, torn. Father, as you've done for me and so many others, I pray, Father, you would just whisper to their hearts that there's something better ahead. The place you will show them is far better than the place they're coming from. And if they would just take that step that you've asked them to take, whatever it is, trusting you with the outcome, they'll be encouraged. They'll be amazed. They'll see what the, what the fuss was all about, why discipleship mattered. And then in an eternity to come, Father, they'll be thankful. That's all of us on some days, Father. I pray that whatever day we're in, whether it's a day of of walking with you and thankful for your patience or a day of, of standing and wondering whether to obey. I, f- I pray, Father, you just speak into our hearts today with a calm and, and quiet voice, something that will tell us that we're loved and assure us that you know what we need to do. Help us obey, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.